Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lease with another episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast, brought to you by our good friends over at Vidyard, Lead 411, Salesforce, Sales Cloud, and of course, Gong.io, the revolutionary game changer in conversation intelligence. So thank you to all our sponsors. We are here today with a, with a guy we both know that we've really enjoyed getting to know over the years, James Ski, uh, who is the founder of Sales Confidence and uh, partnerships for EMEA for Drift, which I know he took over since um, he used to do a lot of event stuff and 2020 kind of threw him for a loop. So James, welcome. We appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. You're two characters that I stare across from across the ponds that give me a lot of inspiration and excitement for the profession of sales. And one of the things that I've been trying to do is bring that energy to London, the UK and Europe. So to actually be engaging with you in this environment is really excited and, and I'm just grateful to hang out with you. So looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, likewise. That's really, that's really, it's really interesting, actually. Is there a non-stereotypical reason why England or the UK um, is lacking a little bit of that kind of energy or that spark or that vibe? I, I, I'm trying to get beyond the like, you know, uh, <clears throat> public persona of like UK being buttoned up and you know is there something beyond that I, I do think there is you know there is a there, there is still even in the sales profession or even in the tech industry a level of conservatism around the character so I, I can tell you now I'm, I'm six foot four when I land in San Francisco I get a lot of interest I'm an English tall gentleman from the UK and the people love my accent and they like my energy I'm an energetic guy here, I stand out as someone that's maybe a bit too energetic. So generally, there is still a level of conservatism here. And even though salespeople are very motivated, very successful, and there is a great um, culture around the profession of sales, and I've helped to evolve and educate that, um, there still quite isn't that level of dynamic energy that maybe yourselves bring to the, the table. You know, if I compare events in the US, North America to the UK, mine bring a good vibe. Believe me, I like to have a buzz, a party and lots of fun. But if you look generally, they're still traditional, quite boring, quite buttoned up. And I think that can give that appearance of um, a little bit mundane and therefore comparing mundaneness to high energy American, which you can do, um, you know, there is somewhat of a difference. <clears throat> Talk a little bit about um, sales con confidence and, and the community and the events. Give people some context, um, you know, to what you've been working on for at least the last couple of years. Yeah, sure. So I founded Sales Confidence in about 2017. Um, I was absolutely inspired by the communities that I was learning about in North America because I was an avid LinkedIner. I spent three years at LinkedIn myself. So I got behind the scenes of the algorithm at LinkedIn. I learned what worked, what didn't work. And I was inspired connecting with people like yourselves, following people like yourselves and seeing how people were positively advocating the profession. And actually that it was a good thing. In fact, it's great to be in sales. And why shouldn't you encourage your children to go into the sales profession? You know, in, in, in London, a lot of people encourage to go into the medical profession or the, the law profession or professional services. Why not encourage your children yeah. to go into sales? And so that's always been a motivating factor for me. Um, and also I'm passionate about mindset and well-being. So when I thought about putting sales confidence 
events on, I wanted to tick a few boxes. One, I wanted to cover mindset. I wanted to be people to talk open and honest about their challenges and be authentic in themselves. Two, overall well-being. If you're not well in yourself, then how can you um, be impactful and effective in your day-to-day job? And then finally, performance. I'm still a guy that wants to deliver excellence and high quality, and I want to encourage others to strive towards excellence. But if you don't have the mental um, resilience and you're not well in yourself, it's very difficult performing. And so it was like this huge gap in the market in London. We've had huge amounts of increase in funding, a proliferation of startups coming out of London over the last five years in particular, but there wasn't really a place to go for salespeople. And that's what I created, a destination, a location for sales leaders and salespeople to come and hang out in authentic spaces and have a good time. And we definitely have a good time. And, and previously, this was a, an in-person couple-day event, correct? Yeah. So mainly, we would do maybe two or three meetups a month. I service mm-hmm. the SDR all the way to the sales leader. So I love the SDR as much as the sales leader. And then we would have an annual conference, which is called SAS Growth. That happens every year on the 7th of July. Um, this year, it's going to be virtual. And we would have a lot of um, uh, in-person activity. But you're right. Traditionally, it's always just been in person because that's what I enjoy doing. Sorry, I had an emergency in the house that I was dealing with. So there's a long pause. And now Scott's looks like he's got a long pause. So um, I I just had an internet instability issue. My my apologies. So um, so where does it go from here? What are you going to do post COVID, right? Like, are you able to rejigger this thing and get it reset up? Um, Yeah. So actually it's a good question. I've been very lucky that um, since moving to virtual and we moved to virtual immediately in February, March last year, the brand has got stronger. The affinity to the brand has got stronger because more and more people have seen the online activities. I've got more people coming from around the world to this destination of sales confidence Predominantly, we do this seven-minute talk style. So it's like a seven-minute masterclass. And that's what people come for. They come for content that is short, actionable, insightful. They're not long 15, 30-minute-an-hour presentations. Mm-hmm. In and out in seven minutes, get what you want and get what you need. And because I've become famous for running these over four years, people know what they get. They trust the brand. And so it's gone from strength to strength. And what's likely to happen in September, I'm already planning it, we will return to in-person. I mean, to give you an idea, when we do a sales leaders event in London, so VP, CRO, um, commercial director, head of sales event, we can get 200 sales leaders in a room. And I know from experience, even in North America, that's not easy to do physically. Um, It's obviously been impossible during COVID, um, but thankfully um, after that, we will be able to do that. And we create an amazing atmosphere. There's good networking and then there's great content. Now, you, you have heard a lot of people deliver these seven minute, um, you know, trainings and, and speeches and, and nuggets of content. So to anybody out there who's listening, who, who may have to deliver a similar kind of speech, whatever, talk a little bit about like what makes some of the, the best ones stand out and pop and, and what has made some of them kind of fall flat. That's, that's an excellent question that I've not been asked. So kudos. Um, so 
you're right. I've seen hundreds of these talks now and I've coached people on how to deliver them successfully. So I'll, I'll talk about how to deliver them successfully and then what to avoid. From a success perspective, um, absolutely, you need to um, put together something that you're passionate and you're known for. So what I always say is if, for example, you um, go and speak to your leadership team or you go into the market or you go to people that work for you and you say to them, what am I known for? What is my reputation? What am I great at? What do you believe I add value to you in your life? Whatever they say, that is the basis of your talk because that is the essence of who you are as a person on the outside. And based on that reputation, that's how you start to think about structuring your talk. You need a great introduction, but the introduction is not how great you are, how successful you are, how many quarters you've hit. No one cares about that. We right. will give an introduction for you. What we care about is immediately adding value, structuring your talk. What are you going to cover in this talk? In seven minutes, you can only make three, five max points. Yeah. So yeah. you've got to thread a couple of stories. Everybody likes an anecdote, a couple of good stories in there. So you can get a, a, an, an analogy in there. Yeah. Have a laugh, have a cry. One of the two. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A couple of key points that um, people can relate to. And then you have a summary. And, and that is your talk. And a strong introduction, three or five key points, and then a summary where people can recap and learn. And it should be punchy. It should feel pacey. It should feel like you can listen to this, digest it, and go straight back to your desk and action it and that's what i want people to do what i don't want to do and it can happen is you presenting how great your company is for seven minutes mm. or you decide yeah. that you need to get some slides and you get your company slides fully logoed up and you just click through for seven minutes you overrun it's not called cool to overrun mm. um it's not called cool to start your talk by using two three of those seven minutes explaining your whole career and how you yeah. spent 20 yeah, years. Nobody cares. I could, I could read that bio on your profile. Yeah, no one cares. Like yeah. they're hearing it all the time. No one cares about the tech of your company that you work for. No one cares um, about how great you are. What they want to do is get an authentic feeling from you. They want to get yeah. an experience and they want to laugh and they want to take something away. If you um, practice your talk and there is no actionable takeaways, scrap it and start again. Because unless there is some takeaways from your talk, what's the value you're, you're, you're giving? You're not giving value. You're self-serving. It's egotistical. And it's not going to help you and your reputation with the audience. Yeah, that's really good feedback. The, <clears throat> the, the putting together of, of, of these events um, is it only really works when you're you when you've got the helping uh, hand and and coin of sponsors right and yes. partners and things like this so i want to spend a, a little bit of time here um and you know richard and i have experience with this as well i have experience with it from my thursday night sales events but i want to know from you because you you've done this at more times than we have and at a larger scale so good on you what are the key to, you know, pitching sponsorships and partnerships? And you've kind of leveraged this. I'm putting words in your mouth, but you've leveraged this now into a role, partnerships role in EMEA at Drift. So, you know, getting partners and sponsors is like, that's James's thing in my, my mind, at least, right? Be, beyond right. just putting together the community and the, and the events and things like that. But like, you know, James knows how to get partners. James knows how to get companies involved to support these things. 
maybe give uh, give us some some keys to how you think about you know that type of type, type of sale and, and and how to make it work for your, for these businesses. Well, I'll call it out. By the way, I love how you connect the dots because that's how I think as well. And you're connecting the dots very quickly. That's exactly why the drift founders said, James, why don't you do what you do for yourself in your community and do it for us in a minute yeah. because we haven't launched yeah. yet. And what I'm very good at is getting attention. That's really important. You have to own the attention in a positive way. I have a, a backstory. So my anecdotal story is that I'm diagnosed with bipolar disorder, um, which is a mood disorder. And I've had some horrendously low experiences and some crazy highs as a relate of that uh, relatable experience. Now that's personal to me. You can't make that up, right? Yeah. So that's me being honest and true. And then as a result of that, I've also had a very successful sales career and then I've been able to build a business off the back of it. But what I've been able to do, I believe, is I've kept the attention and I've moved with the times based on what trends, what new sales technologies were landing um, in this region. So, for example, when Salesloft decided they were coming to the UK, the only company they partnered with, and it's still I'm the only company they partner with in the UK and Europe, um, is Sales Confidence because we have a backstory, we have shared values, we have a shared philosophy, and we're both on a mission to support the growth of the sales profession. So you, you have to align your mission. Even if you see yourself as a, a niche community, mm. that's important. You own the niche. But beyond, it, yeah. beyond that, you've got to absolutely um, be able to um, uh, align with the philosophy of the companies that you want to join. The other thing is I never do one-off bookings for sponsorship. If mm. you want to do business with me, it has to be a year or more. That's interesting. Now, how do you, how do you, I'm, I'm asking for the secret sauce here. How do you frame, you know, the value prop in such a way that you get annual, uh, annual commitment? Well, if you think about your community, it's always compounding week on week, month on month. It's only going to go one direction growth, right? So what hopefully, you invest, hopefully, <laughs> well, uh, it, it, it is right. That's the nature, that's the nature of community. So it's a network effect. And networks are, are always growing, always extending. So a sponsor that sponsors you today for a year is going to get much more value over that year. Mm. Now, the, the other key thing is where is the budget coming from? The hard thing about sponsorships is that people beat you up on leads and conversion yeah. rates, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't care about that. I, like, I, they joke about this all the time. They're like, James, we need to see the science, the data. I said, look, I'm not a scientist. I'm a magician. And I want to make magic happen. And I want to have a good time. And if you want to be associated with something good by brand association, and you're investing in your brand, then you need to invest in me. And you need to invest in sales confidence. I believe the brand value association, which is hard to equate, is much more important than the leads that you're generating. Go and invest your lead budget in PPC, SEO, yeah. you know, stuff that your scientists can track. That's much more effective than what we're doing. But if you want to be known reputationally as being part of something that makes a difference. So what have I really done there? I'm telling you a story, Scott. I'm telling oh, yeah, 100, you a story. 100%. And right? you shifted the focus from what they want to talk about to something that you want to talk about. The prior one was not advantageous for you because you're not a scientist. I'm not that way either. So I'm listening to you, how you flipped the script and told, told the story. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's how I tell, tell the story. That's it, good. 
this is this is exactly it. And um, once once they start to, um, which they do, uh, appreciate you know, the uniqueness, the niche, how focused I am. You also have to demonstrate you're consistent and you're professional. You know, I consistently deliver a good experience, and I consistently don't move my dates. I consistently have mm-hmm. great speakers. I consistently turn up on time. And once you've been doing that over a number of years, then it's a lot easier to convince someone to commit for that year. I also, you know, the commitments companies make are large versus some of their other much larger. They always tell me, James, we're not we're not doing this with anybody else. And I'm like, that's that's good to know. But these are the reasons why you're not doing it with anyone else is because this is the value that you're going to receive. And there is a massive social proof. And I think I have an advantage, at least in the UK market, you know, I'm not one of many, I'm one of a few. And as one of a few, it means that there's more of a group of partners that want to work together, they want to learn from each other, they want to help each other. Um, And that's important. And I'll tell you something else, Scott, I've also turned away a lot more sponsorships to my detriment financially, because I didn't want them associated with the brand. Interesting. And so I've been very selective, because brands, especially tech brands, can pull you down as well as bring you up. And I've made sure to select brands that could bring us up rather yeah. than pull us down. That's very interesting. I mean, I've had conversations not in this sponsorship realm about what I call bad money, you know, bad, bad customers type of thing. Um, but I've never really applied it into the realm that you're talking about right now. And it's pretty powerful. I could, I could see, I got alarm bells going off in my head right now. I mean, you know, a couple of companies that I'm thinking of like, yeah, I don't know that I'd want to be associated with that. So you're protecting your brand by associating yourself with the right brands as well. And that elevates the uh, exclusivity and the power of what you're providing, right? Yeah, exactly that. And that's, yeah. and then the value, the value of the sponsors increases. They all help each other. I like to think of it as a riding tide raises all ships. If we work together, if we scratch each other's backs, if we look after each other, if we look after the sales confidence community, then we're going to grow together and it's going to benefit us. And it means that our stage is above everybody else. Yeah. Like by association, we have the strongest stage. When we bring a speaker onto that stage, they outperform other speaking engagements. They have more fun. It's more memorable. It's, you know, a record is kept from video. I mean, we were joking offline before this, but, um, you know, that we don't have great YouTube followings. But the best thing I ever did was record my in-person events because I've got a historical record that I've been doing this for four years now. Yeah. And even if very few people head over to Sales Confidence YouTube channel, um, the ones that do benefit from it, and I wish more people would, but my audience is predominantly LinkedIn. And over time, I'm looking to categorizing and using um, this power that I've created over time and I'll reuse those videos in a format that's digestible maybe it will become a membership etc yeah I want to go back in time now because I heard you say and I didn't know this about you I heard you say that you were at LinkedIn and I also heard you say that you got you know uh you, you started to learn about the secret sauce of the algorithm this mysterious son of a bitch algorithm that everybody's trying to you know play the game with what what are some of the things that you're allowed to share that that algorithmically algorithmically work that not enough people hold on that not enough people do still 
Okay. So first, you know, the algorithm changes all the, the time. I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm not privy to exactly what it looks like. Even when I was at LinkedIn, I spent a lot of time with the product team because I love to figure out yeah. what it was all about. So just to give you a little bit of a soundbite, when I was at LinkedIn, um, I used to use the sales navigator tool and I had the social selling index. I don't know if you remember the social. Yes, selling I do index. remember that. Yes, I okay. do. So it was very popular for a few years. Everybody would talk about their social selling index. I managed to get 97 out of 100. Wow. And I was number one on LinkedIn, at LinkedIn, in LinkedIn globally. So I was the number one guy working for LinkedIn on LinkedIn. But, but to get there, I became obsessed. I used to call the people in the top 10, wherever they were in the world, and figure out what they were doing that I wasn't doing. I used to call the product team and ask them how they could figure out um, how I could get higher up the rankings by making some changes. And it was almost impossible to get a hundred. Like, mm. I just don't, I, I don't believe it's ever happened. It may have, but I've never heard that. Yeah. So I got pretty close and small things that people don't do, you know, people aren't doing enough with video still. I mean, people talk about using video all the time. You know, Morgan Ingram talks about it every single day on video yeah. as an example. Yeah. I don't video, do enough. I don't, I don't do hardly any it, videos, but it's such a differentiator because of that reason. And they, the algorithm is designed to push video and push more of an audience towards it. They want people doing native video. They don't want people going on YouTube. Yeah. They want but you the, to stay. They want, me to, they want me to stay, but how many people are gonna sit there and watch a seven, let's go back to the seven minute duration. How many people are gonna sit on LinkedIn and watch a seven minute video? It's not about that. Okay. It's, it's about the fact that they're seeing that you are doing those videos. Tell me more it's about, about it's about attention again. It's about that you're holding your audience's attention and you're getting more attention every single day than somebody else. I don't even pit, um, I don't even bother putting the um, uh, subtitles on. Everyone yeah. says it to me. I've been I doing this. Do for, I, I've been. I'm not. I'm not bothered if you don't listen to my talks. What I'm bothered that you see that I'm someone who's active, mm. and that if you, you should take me seriously because I've been active with video. And I've been doing it for years now. So if you're thinking of a person that ha has something to say, when you want to listen to me, you know that I'm going to be the guy that you should come and listen to. Mm. It's, it's like TV advertising. You know, TV advertising, you skip through it now all the time. But yeah. eventually it seats in your subconscious mind that it means something and you end up picking something off the shelf and you don't have a reason why. So are, are, you, are you in the post every day camp then? Or, yeah, or, or more than once a day? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a multiple poster per day. Um, I don't necessarily do video every day, but I probably do video three or four times a week. Um, mm -hmm. I, I probably would be better sharing more of my expertise and tips, but I think I am, I am a bit of a promoting guy. I like to promote events. I like to promote what I'm associated with. Mm -hmm. I could definitely do more giving. I, I mean, I give a lot of value in my text-based content, um, and I am a big believer in text. I can, I can say that um, LinkedIn has definitely deprioritized long form articles. So yeah. I've written over 350 long form articles on LinkedIn, long form articles, long books, and those do not get the same traction that they used to. Now you can, you, you've probably already done this, but now you can go into those long form articles, chop them up and get, you know, three, four posts maybe out of one particular article that might be a way to re, you know, reuse some of the content and get additional lift from it, right? I agree. And that's definitely an approach that needs to be encouraged. I think people often feel like they need to be creating content all the time, net new content. 
Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely <laughs> well, I, right. I, I feel that way. I mean, I don't know if you feel this way, James, but like I feel a significant social pressure to create something great every single day. And, and, and sometimes today, for example, I didn't write shit today. I didn't write nothing. I had nothing, nothing interesting to say, no good thought. So I didn't write anything. And, and I, and I feel it like, you know, <laughs> like I took an L today. That's how I feel. <laughs> like I took a loss today. Like, yeah. you know, yeah, I'm not I, saying, I'm not saying I'm it's right or, or it's healthy. It's certainly not healthy, but like, I, I, I feel that way. So I understand, you know, that, that need to kind of produce something creative all the time and the pressure of that, like it's, it's hard. Yeah. I think if you fall in this space of, you know, in the B2B niche of becoming influential and then you have an expectation on yourself that others put an expectation on you that they want you to be, be able to deliver content. Um, it can be quite challenging. I, I've, I don't feel that way as much anymore. You know, if I decide not to post for a week, I'm okay with that. It's, um, I generally stay on top of it. I, I generally want to lead the pack, as it were. Um, but if I don't have something to say to your point, I, I'm okay with that. Um, the other the other small thing I've noticed recently on your profile on your mobile phone. So if you visit my profile, um, you can actually change your profile pic to a video. I don't know if you've done that. I've, yet. I've, I've seen that now. I have not done that, but I, I've seen that. Yeah. So I, I think that's pretty cool. I'm, I'm, I haven't been the biggest fan of stories on LinkedIn um, and th they don't yeah. tend to get I, that I, much I, attention. I called that lipstick on a pig when it first came out. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you're, I don't think you're far off. I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not the same level of attention that Instagram is. It's a different product. So I'm not the biggest yeah. fan of that. Um, I think the best performing posts are consistency with text making sure you put your links in the comment that seems to still do something. I don't know if it has changed, um, but have something interesting to say and add value, which everyone says. Yeah. So um, I want to go back to something now that I'm back. Sorry. I know everybody right. was missing me and tired of listening to Scott the whole time, but um, James, they can listen to all day. Cause as you said, you have this great accent. Um, what's up with the polls? Like, I don't know if you guys touched on this, but why are uh, polls getting so much visibility, do you think? We, we, we did not touch on that. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I've actually been really enjoying the poll and it's data. I think LinkedIn's getting another level of access to insights and data about our interests. And so they can use those interests to inform the algorithm. They can create products around those interests. You know, remember that LinkedIn acquired lynda.com, which was a learning platform. They've got a learning platform where they need to categorize data, produce courses. So if they know what your interests are or what your challenges are or what you want to learn about, they can produce content which is fitting to your needs. So I've probably done about, I've probably done a poll a week, actually. And then I use that data for my own um, productization or enhancing the community from what I'm learning. And I tend to find that they are getting boosted right now by LinkedIn. And whatever... Yes. So whatever, whatever you come, you know, whatever's new and what's ever getting boosted by LinkedIn, you have to move with those times for that period. Even if you don't like it, you have to jump on it, in my opinion. Yeah, I can't do it. Can't do it. I'm a hater. I'm a hater. You should, you should reframe that, but you should reframe that. Think, think, of, think of this for a moment. Imagine if you could create a poll where the results of that poll were helpful Scott to your audience you were being 
helpful by creating a poll because the data answered questions that that audience have been trying to answer, but they can't do it without maths. That's that's the reframe. Yeah, and I, I'm with you, but I feel like I could find other ways to be helpful. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 let somebody else be the data helpful guy. And then to our to your conversation or your points earlier about like standing out, right? You talked about how you stand out, particularly yeah. uh, you know in England and and whatnot. Like I now think at least. I'm one of the few people at our level on LinkedIn who's actively saying, fuck all these LinkedIn polls. I'm sick of seeing them. I want them to go away. So I'm taking a contrarian point of view. And so yeah. I'm getting tagged in polls now where people are like, wonder what Scott Lee thinks of this poll about what temperature to set the air conditioner at in the house. Right. So like I've now become known as like the poll troll eyeballs. I don't know. Yeah, so I, I that atten- that attention, right? For me, that's 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 positive attention, right? It's not it's not it's not a negative association. We're talking about a little product feature on a platform. So you t- you've taken a position, and then you're leveraging that position from a position of strength, and we're even creating a debate as a result of it. Why not? You know, I, I don't have a hard line. I don't. I I I've, I I've not really taken that many hard lines on LinkedIn. I do keep most of that offline myself, but um, I think it's good to have a position on something and it gives you an advantage over others because you hold the attention. And this game is all about keeping attention. Right, right. Scott, it's funny because I I think Scott will eventually try to think about what you said, add value, and then he just wants to test to see how far it'll go, what kind of reach he can get compared to his regular post. That's why Scott would do it. Yeah, Uh, I I just turned it into a game for myself. That's right. Right. Exactly. So, um, and then he's, even if he wins, he's going to hate winning on that one. So he's shaking his head. Yes. Everybody who's, who's just listening to us. Uh, so James, I, I had to step away. Obviously Scott said something came up, but you guys could go super deep on it, which is um, the highs and lows in strategies and how to deal with them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice do you give to people? And maybe you already answered that, but I don't know. Um, what are the strategies you give to people who feel those highs and lows? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, the nature of being a sales professional means that you're always on a roller coaster of highs and lows, just due to the nature of the pressure um, internally, often driven by yourself, but also external value, value, um, you know, factors from your targets and everything that comes between that. For me, right. detaching yourself from your targets is one of the most important things you can do. The targets aren't going to change. Um, how you respond, how you react to hitting or not hitting those targets is something you can control and you can manage. I'm, I'm much more now I've matured over the years I've been in software and sales is I'm much more in, uh, I'm much better at um, celebrating the small wins, you know, getting the response to the email I wanted and um, getting someone to answer the cold call, getting the LinkedIn response that I wanted and enjoying those small wins and not being disrupted by the major, I'm not on target. I'm not hitting my goals. I'm feeling the pressure from leadership. Um, we're not getting our investment round as quick as we wanted. Those are th- things that take a lot longer, um, and you can get caught up on that roller coaster. And once you get caught on it, which the majority still do, I feel like, when you hit the high, it feels great, but there is inherently a low. 
and that low is really difficult for people to cope with and you know it's been exasperated during covid because maybe we haven't had people around us that would pull us out of it so for me focusing on the small wins has been a big part of that yeah how do you um for people who who do have highs and lows right there's all kinds of people you know um do you think sales is the right profession for them? Because in, in many ways, I can see like riding that high, like just helps you, you know, go, right? Um, but then is the low too low, right? And, and, and what do you think about something like that? I'm sure my life would have been much easier if I didn't go, if I wasn't in sales and I never set up a company. <laughs> like, but would it have been fulfilling? Not at all. You know, the, the, there is sales as a profession is such a fulfilling career you know when you really break it down which is giving value giving value to others um it's not about taking it's not really about the money but the rewards of an income and wealth that can come from it i think are brilliant um for me often it can be related and this is not to overly stereotype but my most enjoyable life experiences has been part of sports teams and being involved in sport and there is something unique that I feel is only replicated as closely as in a sports team is being in a sales team and a sales organization. And I feel you know, this. I feel this. He's speaking my language right now. He <laughs> is. Totally. You know, totally. At, you've got to, you've got, you know, so winning and losing together as a team takes off that pressure. Um, and finding that dynamic and that culture, everyone talks about it. I mean, almost in every single seven minute talk that a leader does, they always bring up the word people and they always bring up the word culture. And sometimes we hear it too much, but it's just the underlying critical element. And I would say that it shouldn't put you off doing sales. You just have to be extra mindful. And in my early career, I wasn't. And I would ride the high and it would be way too much. And I would crash in lows and that wouldn't be helpful. And now I notice the changes. I'm emotionally intelligent. I can reflect. Reflect is really important. Like, throughout the day i have to be reflecting on how you know the dynamics in this interview were like what happened on a zoom call earlier today how was i perceived by someone i was talking to was i overly energetic or was i at the right temperament like i'm continuously self-reflecting self-analyzing and making sure that um for me i'm stable that's why i have to do because i've got a condition but even for others if you can monitor and reflect you're going to be putting your best self forward and that's going to help with your own maintenance and management of your highs or lows because they're not going to go away. Um, and it's also going to be helpful for the people who might have to be around you when you're high or low. Right. So I'm not going to dig into to details, but, you know, how did you learn to work yourself out of the lows? Right. Because, you, you know, you also said it's the most fulfilling career. Right. Because yeah. you're helping people and you're adding value. But. You know, look, I, I talk a lot about my own depression and stuff like that. I'm very public about it. Um, and I know how I work my way out of lows. But I'm curious, if, you know, how, how do you do that? Or how did you do that um, when you were in more of a traditional sales role? Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm um, fairly open as well. Like I've, I've, I've suffered or managed, you know, many depressive episodes. Sometimes it's hard to call it. You know, you just have right. to, you, you, that's the frustrating thing. You can't call when you're going to come out of it. And it's just you have to let it be and you have to yeah. go through, you have to go through it. And I always talk about this light and the fact that 
there's always some hope because there is always some light somewhere and you just have to find more of it. And as you go on, that light grows and it gets brighter. And then before you know it, the sun is out and you feel good again. And you can't really explain how you've got there. Other occasions, I have to take medication that helps me get through it. Other occasions, I need to have a support network, my closest friends, my closest family members who understand who I am and they can put an arm around me or it may be someone in my company. The other thing is I don't think you should hide from it these days. You need to pick a company that's going to look out for you. I mentioned now that I have a a day job, um, which is working for Drift, which is an incredible business um, in hypergrowth, run by two incredible leaders in um, uh, David Cancel and Elias Torres. And they care about diversity, a sense of belonging and making sure that you're well and you're productive and that the environment's flexible. So when I was new to the organization, it was very soon into the organization that I was comfortable explaining my difficulties and everybody rallied around from HR to management and said, okay, we need to make adjustments for James when he needs those adjustments. And, you know, would I have done that 10 years ago in my first software job? No way. I wouldn't have done it five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I, I, I feel the point of people like us maybe speaking out is that maybe you've got those 20 year olds, 21 year olds or 23 year olds right now who are like, Oh my God, I've got this challenge that I've had since school. Um, You know, should my employer know about this? And I Mm -hmm. I think you have to be careful. I'm not necessarily advocating you should walk in and say, look, this is my issue. But you should suss out before you go into the organization by talking to people, digging around, doing your research and finding out what would if you, I go on. Yeah. yeah. What would you because I, I, you know, a thousand percent agree. Right. Like I'm part of Uncrushed, which I think you yeah. know about. And, you know, we've got the survey coming out on mental health and sales, um, at, you know, next week or the week after. Um and this is something we talk about, like the, the data is showing that when the company supports, you know, talking about mental health and particularly burnout in sales, um, performance, there's a, there's a correlation, not a causation. There's a correlation of high performance, but you're right. How do you research that? How do you figure out? So what's your mental health status as an organization, right? Like um, any suggestion, because I, I'm still trying to help figure that out for other people too. And I'm just curious what, if, there, if you've seen any cues. As you yeah, that's, that's a great question. I'm, for me, when you join a company, you're not joining the company, you're joining the leadership. And you can look at the leadership's LinkedIn profiles. You can look at the leadership's Twitter profiles. You can find the leaders on Instagram and you can get a feel for the type of things that they're posting, the type of, perspectives that they share the videos that they share and I think that gives an indication of what type of people they are and then you need to connect with people and ask them the question um you know you don't have to bring anything up you just need to find out um through the back channels what is so-and-so leader like send a message to one of the SDRs send a message to someone in marketing send a message to someone in the sales organization and just be frank to say look I'm considering a role at xyz company I'd love to get a feel from you what your leaders are like. And then it's just asking the right questions to just dig a little bit. Um, you know, what, what kind of question right there? So what, so let's say they're like, oh, you know, they're, they're really good and they do this yeah. and they do this, you know. So what would that follow-up question be? Well, great question right now is, oh, you know, what happened when COVID hit? How did they react? And some companies, I can tell you, there were some companies 
that guaranteed sales compensation for their sales team. Like, that's amazing, right? That's the company that wants to look after somebody. Um, the, other, the other company might have said, oh, um, two days a week, sorry, two days a month, they gave us a day off when COVID hit. Okay, how did your, how did your leader react to you? Oh, he, the, you know, the negative reverse to that might be, oh, he kept working. We worked harder. We all, we, we all went home, but he was slacking us all through the night. There was so much pressure, or she. Um, you know, you pick up those cues, like, is there too much pressure or was there less pressure? Was there more examples of people getting burnout? Was there more people leaving during that period of time? Not just because of the economics, the macroeconomics that we were all in, but because there was something not right in the toxic toxicity of that business. Um, also, look at their previous profile and go and call the company that they used to work at and speak to some of the salespeople there. Like, it's very, I actually think it's much easier now to go and identify where the toxic individuals are and i think if you're listening to this and you're really not taking seriously the well-being and the mindset of your um of your teams then you're going to get found out and being found out is not a good healthy place to be because you're already under pressure as a leader anyway not going to be a good look in 2021 and beyond no that's for sure we've already yeah we've already said that so we gotta we gotta wrap this up and i'm sorry i had to jump out um but i really appreciate you going deep and being you know very vulnerable about um your own experiences in life and sharing that so thank you so much i, I took a couple of notes and i i think i think we're gonna call this episode how to identify the toxic organization um which i think is a really good topic that nobody talks about but we always do this at the end, which is what question can we answer for you? Well, I, um, I, I love, we've talked a, a lot in this um, about philosophy, you know, and I was, ta- I was talking to Scott about having a shared philosophy with sponsors. I, w- I would just love what brings you together, you two, what makes you a match? Why do you think you guys are a, a, a matching pair to do what you do together? Aside from I'm more handsome than him, and he looks well, yeah. like that, yeah. that's a that's a given. Uh, there's we've told the story a lot, but I, I'm happy to share it. Um, Scott was there for me uh, professionally. I, I lost a job in the last recession, in the Great Recession, 2008, 2009. I called an old sales rep, which was hard to do, to say, do you know anybody hiring? And he said, talk to my buddy Scott. And I interviewed with Scott, and he brought me on, and I was. You know, and I think Scott would admit at that time, I, I had some level of qualification skills that he didn't have he was, as a director of sales and he still hired me. And, uh, and I was literally went from a VP of sales role down two levels to a, a line manager, but it was a recession. I just had a baby. We just bought a house. Like I needed a gig. And, uh, and through that, you know, we built a nice camaraderie, um, a good friendship, and it just sort of grew from there. And I think beyond that, I think we learned early on how to bounce ideas off of each other. Uh, Scott was always open to me trying to tell him what to do. (laughs) Uh, At least that's my interpretation of it. And Scott was always really good to say yes or no. And, um, And he could tell, this is where Scott's a genius. He could tell that based on my previous experience, I needed to have some level of autonomy in projects and I was very good at coming up with a project and he'd be like, yeah, go for it. Like whether, I don't know if he ever, you know, I know a couple of them, he was glad I did, but you know, um, 
you know, I, th I think he just recognized that in me that, okay, this guy's 10 years older than me and he's, you know, taking this gig and he needs a little more than just being told to run the team. Although I still mm -hmm. had to run the team. So that's, yeah. I think that was a big connection for me. Um, but I'll let Scott answer. I'll answer it a, a little bit differently. I mean, we're a bit of the odd couple, you mm -hmm. know, <clears throat> and I, and I think that that dynamic um, plays pretty well. Like Richard's always been a little more conservative, buttoned up, you know, I look ridiculous most of the time. Uh, you know, look a homeless person as, as people comment on. Um, <laughs> and we, you know, we go back and forth and we give each other grief as we've known each other for so, so long now. Um, but Richard is very good at the details and the uh, sort of like programming and the priorities and the planning and these kind of things. And I suck at that stuff. I, I don't enjoy doing it. So I don't even lean into it to try to get better at it. Um, whereas. Which I is might... frustrating by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but on the flip side, see, there's a perfect example right here. The, the banter, but on the, on the flip side, like, you know, I, I have ideas every now and then. And, and, and once I get an idea, I'm pretty good doing something about it straight away. And, and Richard is a little more meticulous and thinks things through. So there, there's a lot of yep. yin and yang to our, our friendship and, and business partnership mm -hmm. and whatnot that I think, um, you know, gives us the dynamic that, yeah. um, you know, you, you see in here. Yeah. I think too, we, um, early on, we, you know, we both had boys all right around the same time. Um, you know, I made an effort and I, I was always looking in my mental health for some kind of daddy figure um, or to get some level of love or appreciation that I never got. And Scott was really good at that. And I've always had this habit of becoming good friends with former bosses. And, um, and so then when we connected over the baby thing, I think that kind of helped. And then I, you know, said, Hey, I think we should go to have, let's go have dinner with, with Scott and his wife, Janet, with my wife. And there was a connection there. And then Scott and Janet's, you know, or Janet and Kathy are really close friends now, really good friends. And we went on vacation together, to, which created surf and sales. So it was all that, all the little pieces just kind of kept adding to, yeah, we should hang out more. <laughs> so, and Scott's that... right about the big picture piece. Like I have a really hard time with big picture and, and sort of, you know, two years, three years down the road uh, where Scott has that and he can sort of you know, slap me around on that and say, Richard, look at it this way or, and those kinds of things. So love it. No, it's great. And I, uh, you can see it, that dynamic works well and it's good energy. And I need to get both of you, um, well, one day eventually over here again, but also yeah. just get you visible into the UK and European audience some some more as well so we can work on that I'd love that yeah. well, absolutely I'd, love that. I'd love to i'd love to see a six foot seven guy on a surfboard in costa rica one of these days at surfing yeah. sale <laughs> yeah um that sounds like uh, something i need to be getting uh on my itinerary and my yes. dream list absolutely <laughs> so um, thank we got we got to thank uh all our sponsors again uh salesforce sales cloud lead 411.com vidyard.com and gong.io game changer for every sales leader out there and uh big thanks to you james for spending some time with us on your uh wednesday evening appreciate it lovely cheers guys thanks yeah. bud